your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Joshua chapter 15. Joshua chapter 15. Fall is quite possibly my favorite season. I don't know about you. Um, While I'm not sure that I'm really ready at this point to completely part with the long warm days of summer, I am glad for the crisp mornings we've been having, for the reappearance of apple cider, on the shelves at Aldi, uh, for football, and for the opening of deer season. All reasons to give thanks. Now, already we've begun to see the woods starting to change and come alive with colors uh, as the leaves are, are taking on these their vibrant hues. It's hard to take a drive and not be amazed by those striking reds and yellows and the oranges blazing away there as if God has reached down and set the trees on fire. I've always loved fall. Uh, for its kaleidoscope of color. Uh, I love how all the different trees, with all their different colors, create this landscape of beauty. It's a unique mixture of complementary colors that grabs your attention in a way that the greens of spring and summer just aren't quite there. Even as the leaves begin to fall, there's a certain beauty to be taken in. Uh, It's incredible just to hold a leaf in your hand, though it is one of millions, maybe billions, Uh, just to admire the intricate beauty of its color, of its texture, of its veins, and the structure with which it's laid out. Each leaf is a masterpiece, the product of God's own handiwork, a part of the inner workings of God's creation with a role to play in its life and in its death, which testifies to God's wisdom and the beauty of his design. So as fall goes on, I think that we actually don't always stop to appreciate the beauty of the small things. We don't always stop to think about uh, about the meticulous care that God shows for the details of daily life. Those leaves that fall in the woods in silence far away from the eyes of man are just as beautiful as the ones that we see from the road. Each one is an equal testament to the glory of God, its creator, It is valuable, whether we're aware of it or not, because it exists, as all things do, according to the pleasure of God. There's a message for us in the leaves, if we care to hear it. It's a message that that relates to what we're about to look at in the book of Joshua in chapter 15. It's a message of the tender care that God has for his creation. He is a God who is sovereign over the details, even the ones that seem minute to us. It's the same message of Matthew 6, when Jesus tells his disciples to look at the lilies of the field, which neither toil nor spin, who outshine the glory of Solomon in his kingdom, because they are clothed by God. And Jesus reasons with us that if God has shown such regard for the flowers of the field, which are here today and then thrown into the furnace tomorrow, if by extension he has such regard for the leaves, which today blaze on the tree and which fall to the earth as mulch tomorrow, then will God not also clothe and care for us and for our needs? In Joshua 15, God puts the meticulous care which we has for his people and for the fulfillment of his promises under a microscope for us so that we can see and appreciate the way that he carries out his word to the smallest detail. This morning, we're going to look at the inheritance of Israel's largest tribe, the tribe of Judah. 
And the structure of this passage is, is intended to draw our attention to the details of the land uh, with its clans, uh, the, the land that was given to Judah with its clans in the lower regions of Canaan. Uh, it's a rather lengthy chapter, which sets, but it's an important chapter because it sets the precedent for the way that the rest of the land is going to be allotted to those nine and a half tribes who settled on the west side of the Jordan River. So, in our time this morning, uh, my goal is to draw your attention to the meticulous way that God cares for the needs of his people, even in the things which seem mundane to us. In the weeks ahead, we are, we're going to be looking uh, further at the inheritance which was given to the, the other tribes, but we're going to be taking a little bit of a higher view. Uh, today, though, I want to zoom in, and I want to look at the individual details of one leaf to look at the way God's, God works out his meticulous design and his care with the purpose that in doing so we'll grow in our appreciation for how God provides for us even in the mundane little details of everyday life. So if you're looking at Joshua 15, uh, you're going to have to turn some pages because as you can see, this is a long, drawn-out chapter with lots of details about the boundaries of the land, the cities and the towns which uh, the tribe of Judah received, this note about how Caleb received the land that was promised to him after he had met with Joshua, which is what we looked at last week, and then there's an indication that not all is well in Judah after they had taken possession of the land. Normally, this is the part of my sermon where I'll read the text that we're looking at, and I, you got to know, I wrestled all week with whether or not to read this. I decided that we're gonna, since we're going to look at this a little differently today, I'm afraid that if I read this, I'm going to lose you somewhere uh, between the wilderness of Zen and Am Asmon. So um, I'm just going to, I'm not going to read the text for you. I'm going to leave that for you. There, there's, 60, there's over 60 verses here, and most of them have to do with cities and boundaries of places you've never been and have never read, uh, and scholars don't even know where they are. So just recognizing, I don't want to lose you this morning. There's, there's more about the structure of this that I want to bring out. So um, what I'm going to do, though, uh, before we get into the nitty-gritty passages here, I do want you to see the whole picture here. Uh, and so being that this chapter is 63 verses and that most of those have to do with the, the boundaries and, and the cities, we're going to do things a little differently today. Uh, we're going to deal with them in four sections, and we're kind of going to look at the message of each section together as we go. So, um, as we do that, uh, my goal is to see, help you is to show you the structure of this chapter and how it is dedicated to showing us the faithfulness of God, the meticulous faithfulness of God to His promises. So, the reason we're zooming in on the tribe of Judah this morning has to do with the amount of space that has been dedicated here to describing the land, and also the significance of the tribe of Judah itself. Judah was the tribe of the king the tribe to which David and Jesus both belong. As we trace these lines that made up Judah's borders, we're looking at the king's country, which makes it worth a little extra time to dive into the different sections of this chapter in a way that we won't necessarily do as we look at the land that was distributed to the other tribes. So I want to go ahead and give you the main idea of this chapter, uh, which we'll be looking at today, which is this. We serve a God who lovingly rules over the details of our lives. We serve a God who lovingly rules over the details of our lives. I have four points for you this morning, which are taken for the overall structure of this chapter. Uh, first, we're going to be looking at some kingly borders. 
kingly borders. Second, we'll be looking at kingly faith. Kingly faith. Third, we'll be looking at king, a kingly inheritance. Kingly inheritance. And finally, we'll be looking at a kingly task. A kingly task. First, let's begin by looking at the borders of the king. Now, Joshua 15 actually begins, you, you may not notice this, it begins in a rather unique way. Judah, Ephraim, and Manasseh were the three largest tribes of Israel. So whereas the rest of the tribes on the, on the west side of the Jordan River received their land by lot, as we read in Joshua 14, uh, these tribes received their allotments, it seems, uh, by appointment. It's certainly possible that when the author begins describing what was allotted to Judah, Ephraim, and Manasseh, he means that they received these designations by lot, but there's no denying there's a clear difference between the way he talks about their boundaries and the way the other tribes received their boundaries. It's possible that the reason that there's a difference here is because whereas Judah, Ephraim, and Manasseh uh, went and took the land that was given to them, uh, the other tribes actually had to be encouraged again at Shiloh to, to go up and do what God had brought them there to do. Regardless, though, Joshua 15 is important because it sort of breaks the ice, accounting for how the land was given in a way that becomes a pattern for, all, for the way that the land was given to the rest of the tribes. Now, the first section of this chapter is verses 1 through 12. This section focuses on the boundaries of the land, starting in the south, along Judah's border with the nation of Edom, to the wilderness of Zin, the end of the Dead Sea, going to Kadesh Barnea, along by Hezron, passing along to Asmon, going uh, out by the brook of Egypt, and then finally coming to its end at the Mediterranean. Do we have that slide of the map? Okay, if we've got it, I'm gonna, we're going to throw that up here. I'm going to continue. The southern, this is the southern boundary of Judah, and it forms this sweeping circle beginning at the Dead Sea in the east and sweeping out to the Mediterranean in the west. Now, as we continue to look at these boundaries as they're laid out, we see that the Dead Sea formed the eastern boundary uh, running up to the mouth of the Jordan. And then from there, uh, the author traces out Judah's northern boundary. Uh, this is actually described in the greatest detail, and it runs from the bay at the sea at the mouth of the Jordan, and it runs west, following along, bordering the tribes of Benjamin and Dan. Now, the western boundary is simple enough. He says it's just the coast of the Mediterranean. So, if you're looking here, do we have that laser? Awesome. All right. Presentation time. Here we go. Okay, so... Uh, down here, you're going to find this green spot right here. This is all of Judah. So as we're following this around, it's starting here, and it's going down here, up, connecting here into the Mediterranean. Then our author picks up back here, goes up, east to here, and then follows this along to Benjamin, finally to the, the Mediterranean, and down. It's a lot of land. That's, that's one of the big points as we look at the boundary. Now, I don't know how clearly this comes out in our translations to you, but the language that is tracing these boundaries out is actually framed in a way that's meant to be action-packed and exciting. Uh, we may not think of boundaries as exciting, but our author did. Uh, the word boundary 
occurs 21 times here in 12 verses, which is remarkable considering that that word occurs 84 times in the whole book of Joshua, meaning that these verses account for 25% of its total usage in the whole book. So there's actually a linguistic tool which is being used here where the boundary is being described with all sorts of different verbs as if it's being drawn up for us in real time. Like imagine there's this big red running line just rushing through from here to there to each waypoint until finally we're presented with this huge chunk of land which is God's gift to Judah. Our author is excited. We're not just going from place to place. It's like we're actually riding with him in some sort of blazing chariot, feeling the ups and downs and the turns and the bumps in the road. There's a a visceral sense to these directions, as if we can feel the sands of the Negev down in the south between our toes, or as as if we can smell the saltiness of the Dead Sea and feel the breeze that is coming off the Mediterranean. You're meant to feel these boundaries. Now, this visual language is intended to trigger praise from us as the readers. What you're holding in your hands might seem mundane and difficult to connect to. Landmarks really only ever stir emotions up in the people who have been there, who have memories and experiences there. Joshua 15 isn't just a list of boundaries, though it is that. No, it's also the detailed account of the generous inheritance which God gave to one tribe, the tribe of Judah, the tribe of the king. So this is a close-up description of God's good gifts. And as difficult as it may be for us to relate to the places and the landmarks that we've never been to, we must not cast this vivid account of the inheritance of the promised land to the side the way we rake leaves away when they fall into our yard. God's good gifts are never boring. God's good gifts are never boring. And I think that Joshua 15 teaches us that it's good for us to take time out of our busy schedules from time to time to meditate on the details of how God cares for us. If all we ever do is to think about the big picture of what God has done for us, if if all we ever do is look at the forest instead of walking through it, then we'll miss the beauty of those individual moments when God has cared for us in the most unique and mundane ways. In the struggle of the daily grind, when our affections for the glory of God can tend to cool, remember to meditate on the detailed way that God has met your everyday needs. Jesus teaches us that God cares about the grand scheme of our lives, but that he is also intimately involved in every detail of the day. This morning, God provided me with breakfast, another daily fulfillment of Matthew 6, 26. He nourished my soul through his word as I read in preparation for this morning. He encouraged me and he challenged me as I heard you sing together, thus fulfilling Colossians 3, 16. He has kept me and he keeps you so that I know that apart from his loving will, not one, of our, not one of the hairs of our head may fall to the ground. On the surface, none of that may sound significant or exciting. It's not like the parting of the Jordan River or the crumbling of the walls of Jericho, but each one of them is a little manifestation of God's own faithfulness, just like each one of these boundary lines is in Joshua 15. 
So listen to the first lesson of Joshua 15 and learn to gratify your heart in the gracious way that God cares for you and providing for your every need, not just the big ones, but every one of them, in each according to the riches of his glorious grace. Now second, we want to look at the faith of the king, this kingly faith. The next section of Joshua 15 is, is composed of verses 13 through 20. And the focus of this section in the chapter uh, actually shifts from drawing out the boundaries that were given to the uh, tribe of Judah to follow up on Caleb. Now Joshua 14 told us how Caleb requested the inheritance which had been promised to him uh, and how it was granted to him. But these verses fill us in, these verses in Joshua 15, fill us in on the details of what actually happened when Caleb went there. In verse 12, we see that according to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, he gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, a portion among the people of Judah, Kiriath Arba, which is Hebron. Arba was the father of Anak. And Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Sheshai and Ahiman and Talmai, the sons of Anak. And he went up from there against the inhabitants of Debir. So, we see that with Joshua's blessing, Caleb went up into battle against the Anakim, those invincible people of the south. And we see that God did in fact go with him, and that he drove out from before him the three sons of Anak. Caleb also, we see, went up and fought against the inhabitants of Debir. Now if you remember a year ago when we were going through the initial conquest of the land, you may remember that the, uh, in the account of Israel's conquest of southern Canaan, that Debir was one of the fortified cities that Israel actually had taken over underneath Joshua's leadership. So it looks like after Israel had captured it and then left to go north to deal with the, the Canaanite people up there, that people had moved back into this city, and now Caleb is having to retake it. In the description of the battle that we have here in verse 16, Caleb seems to be functioning really as sort of the commander. And that only makes sense. He had the most experience. The land was promised to him. He has authority here. We see he's exercising that. But what we also see, to our surprise really, is that Debir was really not a city that was a pushover. Uh, taking it was no easy task. And what clues us into that is the way that Caleb actually puts a bounty on it, promising his daughter in marriage to whoever can go up and capture it. Now, that's sort of an odd thing to read from our perspective, but it wasn't at all uncommon in the ancient world to do that. And so this challenge actually sets the stage for the introduction of Athenial, the warrior who arose to the occasion. Now, Athenial, we are told, was, one of the, was a son of Kenaz, who was Caleb's brother. Once again, a little odd from our point of view, but not at all, at all, not at all strange in the ancient world. Uh, and we see that he took the city and that Caleb did just what he said he was going to do. He gave his daughter Aksah to Athenial, his nephew, to be his wife. So the land stays in Caleb's family in that way. Now this little detail of how Caleb came to possess Debir is important for two reasons. First, it introduces us to Athenael, who became an important figure in Israel's history after Joshua died. Second, it explains how Athenael came to possess the land uh, of the Negev and also the upper and lower springs through the persistence of his new wife. 
Athenael took after his uncle and then father-in-law's uh, courage. We see he, he himself served as a courageous soldier, and then later he served as a judge for Israel. Athenael was a, a guy who had a front row seat to Caleb's faith and to Caleb's courage. And Joshua 15 tells us how he himself put faith into action and was richly rewarded by God for his acts. Now, it's no small thing that after describing the boundaries of the tribe of Judah, our author returns to Caleb, informing us how God did indeed drive the sons of Anak before him. Caleb is a model of enthusiastic faith in the faithfulness of God. And while our author could have just ended things, uh, telling us in Joshua 14 that the land had peace and rest from war, he doesn't do that. He was not content to do that. Now, our author wanted us to see how God enabled Caleb to obey and how he blessed Caleb's faith with a great inheritance. The promises that God gives his people aren't vague, sweeping pronouncements that might happen. No, they are great and glorious and sure. As we look at the details of how God delivered this, uh, delivered on his promise to Caleb, I'm reminded about the importance of living out our faith before others, especially in our families, before our children. Uh, this detail of, uh, about Athenael shows us the infectious nature of Caleb's faith, since we see that his legacy was actually passed down to the next generation, so that when the time for courage and faith came after Caleb had passed away, the legacy of his faith lived on in the life of his son-in-law. The greatest thing that our children can inherit from us isn't property, it isn't influence or skill. It is a love for King Jesus. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, Paul says in Ephesians 6, 4, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. <clears throat> Teach these words diligently to your children, Deuteronomy 6, 7 says, Talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Teach your children, your nephews and nieces, your sons-in-law and your daughters-in-law about the excellencies of Christ. While we cannot will our faith to them, God has called us to model faith before them and to trust him to use that testimony according to his good pleasure. The relationship that Caleb has with his nephew and then son-in-law, Athenio, is a great example of what it means to model faith for the next generation. And we see how God blessed that as he, um, his, he used both Caleb and Athenio there. So then the third, the third, and our, the, now we come to our third section, which is we want to look at the king's glory. So in our next section, the next section of Joshua 15, we see that our author summarizes the inheritance of the tribe of Judah, actually giving us a list of all the cities that they received. Now there are, if you look at this, uh, there are over 115 cities which are listed here, and there are a slew of other towns and villages that aren't accounted for by name. It's a list which is supposed to grab your attention, and actually which is meant to, uh, to draw your attention to the prominence of the tribe of Judah in and amongst the other tribes, which is something when we go back and compare this inheritance to the blessing which Jacob gave to Judah all the way back in Genesis 49, I want to read, which I want to read for you now. So listen to what Jacob says was going to happen. 
Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my sons, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and, and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. That, my friends, is a kingly blessing, is it not? When Jacob blessed each one of his sons, he told them that it course, this is what was going to happen to them uh, in the days to come, meaning that these words were going to be felt by their descendants. Judah's blessing is truly unique to that, that, to that which was received by his brothers because we see that Judah received a royal blessing. The scepter, Jacob says, shall not depart from you, nor the ruler's staff from between your feet. Your brothers will bow down before you and shall praise you. Your hand will be on the necks of your enemies. Those are things that you say to a king. When this land was first given to the tribe of Judah, there was no king in Israel. As time went on, the absence of a king was felt, since the book of Judges tells us that each man did what was seemed right to him. Without a king, the people wandered from God which is what makes Jacob's blessing to Judah so significant. From this royal tribe, we see in time that God raised up a king, a man after his own heart, a man by the name of David. And then he built David's house, and then he sealed David with a promise that he would have an offspring who would reign on his throne forever. Jacob's prophecy keeps us from thinking that God chose Judah to be a kingly tribe because Judah was more righteous or because the people were more numerous or because somehow they were more powerful. No, no. Go back and read, if you will, about Judah the man in the book of Genesis and I think you'll be quite surprised that God chose Judah from among his brothers to be the tribe from which he would raise up David and then later Jesus. Instead, as we read this list of cities which God gave to the tribe of Judah, a list which far exceeds the number of cities given to any of the other tribes, we see how God worked through Judah and in spite of Judah to accomplish his redemptive plan, thus fulfilling all that Jacob had prophesied over 450 years before this had happened. And something really to follow this list of cities as it moves from the extreme south near its boundary with Edom to the lowland to the Philistine cities of Ekron, Ashdod, and Gaza to the hill country which was Caleb's portion and even to the wilderness. It's a portion which can only be described as kingly especially when you think about how God then brought all of Israel under the shepherd's staff of King David. Once again, the book of Joshua is centering our attention on the faithfulness of God in keeping all of his promises. Now, there's no reason for us to think that when the clans of Judah received this massive portion of land to be their inheritance, that they somehow realized that one day God was going to bring up and raise up a king from them who was going to bring all of Israel together. 
there's even less reason to think that they knew how God was going to exalt the throne of that king using his line, his offspring, to bring salvation to the world as he has done in King Jesus. But God did that. That's part of why we read from Revelation 5 this morning where Jesus is called not only the root of of, of Jesse, the root of the, son of the son of David, but also the lion of the tribe of Judah. The cities, the list, list of cities in the land of Canaan was really only the tip of the spear of everything that God had in store for his people. It was only the beginning of the blessing. As regal as this inheritance of this list of cities and towns and villages is, it pales in comparison to the eternal wickedness the eternal weight of glory which Jesus has secured for us through his cross and through his resurrection. As, as we enjoy the many benefits of God's mercy to us here on earth, let's not forget the greater and higher inheritance that we have in King Jesus who loved us and gave his life for us, who defeated death and the grave, and who reigns eternal in the heavens. That brings us to our fourth section this morning. The task waiting on the king. A kingly task. Joshua 15 actually ends on a bit of a dark note, doesn't it? It's like one of those days when you wake up and the sun is shining, but as soon as you look out on the horizon, you see storms brewing. In verse 63, we are told that the Jebusites, which are the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, could not drive out. So the Jebusites, we are told, dwell with the people of Judah at, at Jerusalem to this day. Now, if you go back to verse 8, you'll see that Jerusalem is listed in the boundaries between Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. And actually, when we, when we get to Joshua 18, we're going to see that Jerusalem is listed as one of the cities which belong to them, which belong to the tribe of Benjamin. And that was confirmed, that's further confirmed in Judges 1, verse 21, which says that the Benjaminites did not drive the Jebusites out of the area but that they, that they were the ones that permitted them to go on living in Jerusalem. Now, this is a little bit of an interesting scenario, uh, and the best way to explain what's going on there is to understand that Jerusalem, because it was on the boundary between Judah and Benjamin, it only makes sense to say that these two tribes shared in the blame of not seeing the task of securing the land that was given to them through. But here in Joshua 15:63, the focus of our author is only on the tribe of Judah and how they failed to do this. Now, even though the tribe of Judah did capture the city of Jerusalem, even going so far as to burn it, according to Judges 1, verse 8, they did not fully complete the task. And that led to Jerusalem and the stubborn Jebusites who moved back in there to become a real thorn in Israel's side for years. For all of Caleb's faithfulness and the faithfulness of his family, we're left hungry here at the end of this chapter for one who will see the task through, for the one who would obey God fully and drive the enemies of his people from the land. It took a king to see this task through, and it wasn't until the rise of King David that Jerusalem was finally and definitively taken from the Jebusites which is something to consider that King Saul, who came before David, was from the tribe of Benjamin, to which uh, we, we see Jerusalem is actually called a city that is for Benjamin. So the fact that King Saul didn't take it, and that his successor, King David, was the one who did, and the fact that he was from the tribe of Judah, really is astonishing. King Saul was the one who should have seen this through, 
After all, it was originally listed as a city belonging to his tribe. But Saul was not a king after God's own heart. And he was not the king who saw this through. That task fell to another, to David, who was from the tribe of Judah. And thus, after he had taken the city, the people started calling Jerusalem the city of David. It took a king to vanquish the foes of God's people. And it took an even greater king, one whom David himself called my Lord, to defeat an even greater enemy, sin and death. Isn't it something to consider how King Jesus secured victory over sin and how he secured peace with God for us in the same city where David finally secured victory over the Jebusites? That's an interesting connection. Isn't it even more glorious, though, to think about how in the gospel we have not received an earthly city, but a heavenly Jerusalem as our inheritance. So for all the good that is in this chapter, for the faithfulness of Caleb and Athenael, for all the riches that God poured out on this tribe, we're left hungry by verse 63. And, we're, and that's intentional. Because we were never meant to find hope and satisfaction in mere human saviors. We were always meant to find it in Christ the King. In Him, God has revealed the mystery of His perfect plan of redemption. In Him, we have inherited a better city and a better land, the King's country, where we will be gathered in to dwell with Him forever. There are so many details in our lives that we tend to overlook in the hustle and the bustle of our daily schedules. But they are nevertheless marked with the careful attention of our Sovereign Lord. So let me encourage you this week, from Joshua 15, to just slow down, to take some time to think about all the details of how God daily displays His faithfulness to you in your life. We have so many reasons to bless the Lord because he truly is the careful shepherd of his people. Let's pray. Lord God, this morning we have read, or we have looked at the boundaries that you set for Judah. We have read of the courage and the faith of Caleb and Athenael, who you raised up, uh, not only to be um, examples of faith, but also deliverers in, uh, in Israel in their lives. We've considered the great weight of glory that you gave to Judah, the the royal tribe. And we have also considered how Judah fell short of seeing the task that was given to them through until the day of the king arrived. Father, it's given us quite a few things to ponder on. And I pray, Father, that as we learn from your word about about your great love for your people, that we would cast ourselves onto you to trust you in your sovereignty over every detail of our lives. I pray that you would give us time this week to be able to slow down, not just to look at the overall picture of what you're accomplishing in the world through Jesus, but also that we would appreciate the many, many, many ways that you are constantly faithful in the nitty-gritty details in ways that we're not even aware of. And I pray, Father, that as we do meditate on that, that our hearts would be made full in King Jesus, who is our Savior and our Lord. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.